0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Brock Clark back to the program today. Brock is the chair of the English Department at Bowden College and has written three collections of short stories and five novels, including An Arsonist's Guide to the Writer's Homes in New England. He was previously on the program to talk about the novel, The Happiest People in the World, and today we'll be talking about his latest, Who Are You, Calvin Bloodsoe?, which is published by Algonquin. Calvin Bledsoe is a recently divorced 47-year-old blogger who lives in the small town of Congress, Maine. I have a suspicion that's not the answer that you implied by the question of the title. (laughs) It's true, right?
1: It's a rhetorical question.
0: I know exactly who he is, but he doesn't know. Here's the most facile question of the interview. Who are you, Brock Clark?
1: Yeah. Newly bald, newly bearded, 50-year-old man (laughs) who grew up in upstate New York and now lives in Maine and works in Maine. You want more? I can give you more.
0: Since the book is not about the details of his life, but who he is in terms of what he wants and what he's willing to do mm-hmm. to get what he wants. You know, I'd kind of like to know what do you want
1: and what are you willing to do to get it? I, I want lots of things, but I'm not really not willing to do any of the things it would take <laughs> for me to get those things. Because I don't think Calvin actually knows what he wants. I think he wants to be left alone. I guess he does. He wants to be left alone at the beginning of the book, and then I just won't let him. And do you want to be left alone? Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, feel, I feel harassed just like everyone else. That's like a great writerly thing. The great thing about being a writer is that if you're lucky, people leave you alone throughout the day. And then they show up again when you're done wanting to be left alone. So I guess that's me wanting to be left alone until I very much don't want to be left alone anymore, especially when it
0: comes to publication. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. right. When
1: the book comes out, I want people to want me to actually talk with them like this.
0: In terms of nominative determinism, Calvin has not lived up to his namesake of John Calvin.
1: <laughs> this is true. I don't think I've ever given an interview where someone has said nominative determinism. This is great. First time. <laughs> it only took me like eight books to get here. So all that's right. great. Yeah. No, he's not lived up to his name. So he's named after the theologian John Calvin. His mother was the author of a world famous book about Calvin in the novel, and he's named after him, but otherwise resembles him not at all. My famous Calvin's full of strong opinions and my Calvin's full of none.
0: Has there been a world famous book about John Calvin in our lifetime?
1: Well, you know Marilyn Robinson writes about him all the time or talks about him all the time, which is part of the genesis of this novel. But otherwise, no. Like one of the reviewers called it the something like unquestionably the funniest novel ever written about Calvinism, and that's because there aren't any other competitors. That's just this book. So no, there was a rock band called Fudge Tunnel. No, there was not really. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I don't know where this is going, but, I
0: but they had a song called Pope Calvin at one point. <laughs> oh, that's great, and uh, they had a singer from another band sing on it and do the lyrics for it. And I asked him, I said, you know, so is this about, cause you can't understand the vocals. It's, uh-huh. it's heavy metal. And I said, so is, you know, this about the reformation and everything? And he goes, no, it's about Calvin Klein and his jeans. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I would expect nothing better than that from a band called fudge tunnel. So, in his mother's very famous book because it's not only about calvin but it's about his mother's relationship with calvin and how it relates to her life and her family so people all around the world have read about poor calvin bled all his life
1: yeah so it's sort of a book about her i mean you know it doesn't exist i made it up but insofar as it exists because i made it up it's a book about one how she thinks calvin should be in all of our lives that is john calvin should be in our lives and then she talks about her son's life by way of saying he hasn't yet got there. And I think it's famous. My idea is famous because people want to be told how to live. It seems like we spend 99% of our time waiting for someone to tell us how to live. And that's why I think people in the novel love that book so much because it does that thing, which is exactly why Calvin, the character, is so beset by it. So because he just, he just, he's tired of her telling him how to live.
0: But he really doesn't have any ideas on how to do that himself.
1: No, it's hard, right? I empathize. Like, it's really hard to know how you're supposed to live. And it's hard to come up with those ideas on your own, which is why I put the influence of his aunt into the novel, because he needed some help. He needed someone to teach him, I guess. My idea is that you always need someone to teach you how to be yourself. It's really difficult to actually do it by yourself. I sound like I'm a freaking self-help writer now. I don't think I am. But there's a lot of this stuff. And he's like, he's a 50-year-old man, nearly 50-year-old man who doesn't really know how to go about being an adult. And so I thought he needed some help.
0: Self-help, I think, nowadays is just a continuation. We always have had these huge questions about our lives, whereas we used to read philosophy, poetry, Mm -hmm. look at great art. Now we just
1: want someone to tell us what the shortcuts are. Yeah, so do you think novels do that? If they're good, they do. Yeah, I guess, but they're not really useful as like manuals manuals for living, they're manuals for how people you've made up live, but you get to do certain things in worlds you make up that you can't do in the world we live in, right? So I was on that kind of conflict, that expectation, interesting the idea that novels are going to teach us something directly rather than indirectly.
0: Well, there was a novel I read almost 20 years ago that gave me the confidence to make big changes in my life because the character had gone through horrible things Uh and and still found happiness on the other end of it. What was the novel? Carter Beats the Devil by Glenn David Gold. Yeah, sure. I remember when it came out. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I should read it then because I... Probably could use some help. It's a page turner, too. Yeah. Well, and your books are page turners, too. They have a, a strange mix of intrigue, comedy, and profundity. And I was wondering do you put the profundity in there to give weight to the comedy? Or do you put the comedy in there to make the profundity
1: accessible? That's right. Every t- 30 page, I give a, a profundity injection to the novel. <laughs> uh, I guess my idea is that, yeah, I begin with premises that are usually comic in one way or the other. But they're always, even from the beginning, associated with something more seriously, like longing, mostly longing, or just, in this case, death. This novel begins with two deaths. Uh, Calvin's parents died uh, in separate deaths at the beginning of the novel. And those, that's a kind of traumatic thing. And so there's already a kind of seriousness to that, even though I treat it comically. You know, there's all sorts of betrayal in my novel. That's serious, even though I treat it comically. So my idea is that you begin with comedy as a way to approach something serious because it sort of disarms the reader.
0: Do you have the ability to stay on focus when you're talking about profound things in your personal life? Or no, do I'll t- do
1: anything. I like to see i squirrel so the person like gets off the subject right, right away. No. That <laughs> so makes, how does, it makes me profoundly uncomfortable. Uh, how do how do the loved ones in your life react to this? Well, they're used to it, right, by now? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm capable of talking about serious things. You know, I come from you know, a family of Yankees. So even the Italians in my family are like Yankee-Italians. So they're super close to the vest. And they will... Let you know when something matters to them, but it takes them a long while, and often doesn't come out directly. So that's just how I was raised. You mentioned his parents die. His father just dies essentially of old age. Gets a heart attack. Has a heart attack. Yep.
0: And then his mother suffers a tremendously horrible accident.
1: She's pulverized by a train. right. So the, the novel begins. I think it's the third or fourth chapter, and the chapters are very short where she, her car gets stalled on a railroad track and she's struck by a railroad hauling propane tanks to Canada. And just, she's just incinerated. There's nothing left of her.
0: So there are a lot of conflagrations in your books. Yeah. A lot
1: of fire. What's going on I just on have there? no other ideas. I, you know, none of it's intentional. When they were running the covers, past me, there's a flame in the cover. I was like, why is there flame in this book cover? There are no, there's no fires in the book. And they they of going through them. There's the one you spoke about, which the aunt gets burned. The fact that the narrator is a, pe- a blogger for the pellet stove industry. Later in the novel, there's a house fire. Uh, so it just must be something I find attractive, which is weird because in real life, I don't find it attractive at all. I'm not a firebug I'm not attracted by I don't stop when I see fire trucks. So yeah, I think it's a useful literary tool. I should find something else though. Hurricanes, next
0: book. (laughs) Do you think it might be more of in terms of fires as in Phoenix rising
1: from the ashes or more of Pyrrhic victories? I guess the latter. (laughs) But then again, I'm always more into the Pyrrhic victories than the Phoenix rising from the ashes. Although either would work for this novel, I think. There's a bunch of rising.
0: Now you mentioned the the pellet stove industry, and Calvin is a blogger uh-huh. for the pellet stove industry. You do pick out kind of improbable jobs for your characters, yeah,
1: I mean for me, partly because you know there 's been some jobs are just used up for me i can 't think of a good way to use them in a novel because they don 't narrow the character 's focus his scope, and I can tell you why I chose that one but All of a sudden, I was like, well, and he's a pellet stove blogger. That means he's going to talk in pellet stove metaphors. When I realized that, I had a better take on this particular character. And also, as a blogger, he doesn't really want to see anyone else, which fit his character, too.
0: Even more improbably, his ex-wife is a pellet stove blogger as well. She's the other
1: one. Yeah, they're different ones. Though, Like, he's the one, he's the chipper one, and she's the one who just scowls about the predominance of the conventional wood stove, which she always calls in scare quotes in her blogs.
0: I found that in order to figure out if one of your friends has a pellet stove, Don't worry, they're going to tell you about it. Yeah,
1: that's right. People love to talk about their pellet stoves. I do not have one. I actually don't have many friends who have them either. So that part of the novel got started when I was in an airport. I think it was the Portland Maine airport. And this guy next to me was yammering loudly on his cell phone about how much he loved his pellet stove. And that stuck in my head. I had never met at that point someone who felt that strongly about almost anything, but especially a pellet stove. And so I just squirreled that away until the time came right to, to use it.
0: Yeah, I didn't know if you had an axe to grind against a big pellet stove or
1: what. I love the idea of big pellet stoves. I I, I love those kind of, those grand terms paired with something ridiculously mundane. Someone the other day, one of my students, not the other day, last year, used the term big Velcro. And I had no idea what she was talking about. I don't remember. But immediately I thought of someone who constantly talked about big Velcro. Eh, so I wrote a story about that, too. There's no idea so ridiculous that I can't find use for it.
0: In some ways, who are you, Calvin Bledsoe? It's kind of a mirror to your last novel, The, the Happiest People in the World. Mm-hmm. There you have Jens from The Happiest People. Mm-hmm. is kind of a schlub living in a small town in Denmark. And through weird circumstances, goes through Europe, and then ends up in a small town in the northeast of America. Uh-huh. And now you have Calvin Bledsoe, right. who takes the opposite journey. Yeah, goes that's... from the northeast of America to Scandinavia and then the mm-hmm. rest of
1: Europe. I don't know what the third thing would be in this. In this, if this were a triptych, I'm not <laughs> sure it would be. He would go to the center of the earth or something. But yeah, I'd never occurred to me until right now that that's true. And I think for me, every novel I write is a reaction in some ways to the previous one. And this one someone wanted to come to America badly. And sorry, in the previous one, in this one, I'd personally wanted to get out of America. But also, I wanted to write a character who had to go somewhere else or was forced to go somewhere else to travel. So I think the impetus was a little different in these novels. And also, Jens in that book has done something to get him into trouble. Calvin in this one hasn't done anything. And I thought it was a real pleasure for me to write someone who is relatively pure, also boring. He wasn't on the run from anything, except from his own boringness. And that was an interesting challenge to try to make someone more interesting.
0: In this case, it's pure not because of intent. It's just because of lack of opportunity, it seems.
1: It, yeah, exactly. Like, I think his parents were such strong personalities, especially his mother. Uh, and the town he lived in was so – it's a kind of town where everyone – I mean, as, this, as everyone knows, everyone knows what everyone else is supposed to be. And if that's the case, then why try hard? And so when he gets yanked out of there, he suddenly has to figure out, well, really, who he's supposed to be outside of the small town.
0: If you remember the comedian Gallagher who used to smash yeah. the watermelon. Watermelon with a hammer, yeah. One of his big jokes was there are pros and cons. Con is the opposite of pro. So, the opposite of progress is Congress. Congress. <laughs> and Calvin is making no progress That's in Congress.
1: That's true. God, so again, it's been 20 years of writing before someone's talked about Gallagher in, uh, in one of my books. Uh, I remember being just mesmerized as a, as a teenager by those things. All of a sudden, this dude with this enormous hair. And suspenders, right? You kind of look like yeah, yeah. Mork from Mork, and like a little a newsy cap or something. Yeah, and they just there just hammer watermelons. That was incredible. That's true. Congress is my little joke. Is everything for some reason in Maine? There are always streets that are called Congress. So I just named the town. There's no town called Congress as far as I know.
0: Why Maine this time instead of upstate New York? Yeah, I
1: had nothing more to say about upstate New York. I thought, I mean, I'd written four or five books that, in one way or the other, were set there. And I thought that was enough for me. I was just going to keep doing the same thing. But actually, this novel was originally another novel set in Maine, set in Portland, where I live now. And I wrote like 150 pages, spent two years on it. And it was slick and easy and superficial. And there are already too many people who have too many strong opinions about Maine, how great it is, or how awful it is. And I just don't feel that strongly enough about it. And I also don't have anything new to add. So I thought. Huh, maybe I'll make up a town and then just yank him out of it almost immediately when the novel starts and then maybe I'll surprise myself along the way. So the first novel I've written where most of it is set not in the place where the characters from.
0: And this one is in first person as opposed to the happiest people which was in third.
1: Yeah, and again a reaction that's it's not just in third it's omniscient third and the novel gets in the heads of almost all the major characters and some minor ones too and often in the middle of the paragraphs. And I think after that I was like, okay, I'm ready for a person like one person who I can follow. And luckily it was someone I thought worth following.
0: It seemed that Calvin had taken people on face value most of his life. His mother would say what she was thinking mm-hmm. and his father would probably use some sports metaphor. Yeah, to exactly. <laughs> express exactly. And
1: he's got a catchphrase. It's this isn't my first rodeo. you yeah. know, Right. So he's defined by that. Right.
0: But now, once his aunt comes into his life, he has to think about what other people are thinking because Mm -hmm. it's not apparent. And at that point, he has to think about, well, what am I thinking?
1: That's a really good reading of the book. And that's one of the things I like most about writing it is someone who's becoming aware for better or worse, because it gets him into trouble and makes his life more complicated, but it also makes him richer. And what he realizes, which for me is part of the purpose of writing a novel, is that there are things he doesn't know. So the novel in that way becomes a mystery, which is true of, I think, most of my last four novels. And then the character has to figure out, well, what is it that I don't know? That's compounded by the fact in this novel that he's traveling in countries where he doesn't speak the language, but his aunt does. And so not only are there secrets that are being kept from him, people are often talking about the secrets, but they're talking about in languages he can't understand. So that's a sort of double bind for him, which made it for me twice as fun to write. Because he had to get better at these things, right? He had to get better at figuring out what people are talking about, get better at figuring out what secrets they might be keeping from him. And little by little, I think he does.
0: Nowadays, we think of the buildings, Roman, as a young person's coming of age story. Mm -hmm. But this was a middle aged man finding himself. I'm going
1: to be writing a Social Security coming of age story in about 13 (laughs) years. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I I think maybe this is something uh, as a kind of fundamental interest of mine, people who haven't figured out how to grow up yet. Maybe sooner or later, I'll grow out of that. But it hasn't happened yet. Why did you set it just prior to the election of 2016? For me, I mean, partly because I was writing it around that time, and I had the same impulse that Calvin did. That is, when Trump was elected, I thought I'd rather be living almost anywhere now. This is not a a feeling that was original to me. And I thought it mattered to the book, right? I thought, in the same way, the book in some way, was. it takes off from Graham Greene's novel Travels with My Aunt, which was written in the late 1960s, but it was set earlier than that. And it was about how stultifying and boring England was. And it was very much about England at that time, but it does it very lightly. Like that's not the predominant theme, but it appears, it flickers throughout the novel. I wanted that to be true in this one too, but I didn't want to just write this diatribe about Trump, which I was already bored by even when I was ranting, like to friends in my head. So I thought it should be in the background here and should inform everything, but it shouldn't be the reason the novel exists. America's number one, or what? Yeah, America's number one. I mean, this this, this happening you know, around that time. My son was a field goal kicker, and they go to these his high school games, and people would have hats and T shirts like this, but they often had misspellings. And I, I took a lot of those things in the novel from that experience sitting in the football game stands.
0: We've mentioned her a couple of times, Calvin's aunt Beatrice, mm-hmm. and he didn't know he had
1: an aunt Beatrice. Right, and that's one of the secrets. So she just shows up at his mother's, her sister's, her twin sister's funeral. One, I thought that was really useful because she's just packed with mystery. Two, because she's packed with mystery, she does things that I think more solid characters, more known characters couldn't do. Like she shows up one day soon after she comes back, she comes into Calvin's life and she has his passport, a passport, which he didn't have one before and said, we're going to Sweden. And because she's full of mystery, I think she gets away, or at least I get away with having her do these things. And along the way, Calvin begins to try to know more about her and he begins to suspect at some point that actually she's his mother and that becomes part of the novel's quest to figure out well is she or is she not
0: even though she shares a name and a mission with beatrice from the divine comedy she is not as virtuous as dante's beatrice no that's
1: true and someone the other night pointed that out i gave a reading two nights ago and someone said the same thing right it's one of those things i was sort of half thinking of half aware of but it didn't become a predominant thing this is how stupid and rudimentary i am my grandmother was named beatrice hence it's in the novel yeah, yeah.
0: Going back to classic literature again, one of the main themes of the story is the unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah. And Socrates, of course, said that, but it was during his trial for corrupting the youth <laughs> and his impiety and Aunt Beatrice is corrupting the youth and
1: she's very impious. Yeah, no, I think that's that's the, it's that kind of education. Right? It's not the, the education of Adams. It's the education of Calvin Bledsoe, which means that he's someone who needs to be corrupted in order to grow up, I think, or at least to learn that there's some pleasure in corruption, even though there's also a price to be paid for it. So, yeah. And I also like, you know, it's more fun to write a character who's up to no good. And especially with Beatrice, who she's up to no good, but on the other hand, she seems to genuinely care about him. And that's an interesting conflict in a character to someone who is able to. to do both these things at the same time. One of her catchphrases is, you shouldn't judge me. And I was like, of course she would say that, but is it possible not to be judged when you're doing all these judge-worthy things? <laughs> it was fun to learn about her character.
0: I liked her tendency to make sweeping generalizations and not justify them. Oh, because God. Of the point about the keyless entry on cars was hilarious. That's
1: when I knew I had her character when I wrote that detail. And I have to say, I'd thought of that myself at some other random point before writing this book. It had no justification whatsoever, and I couldn't use it because it's stupid. <laughs> There's no basis in anything, but I thought this would be a character who says things that can't be justified, and so she doesn't bother to justify them, therefore making them justifiable maybe, wise. I don't know.
0: I know enough about cars to know that it was mostly Fords and Lincolns that had those keypad entries, uh-huh. and that Henry Ford, of course, was a terrible racist. Yeah, right,
1: right. That's funny. Yeah, that, that's true. This The one that I saw that made me think this was a Lincoln.
0: Also, when they get to Logan Airport in Boston, she said that a Dodge Lumina had been following them. And I know enough about
1: cars that there's no such car. And I went, (laughs) "She's either stupid or she's lying." She's lying. Yeah, it's also my thing. Like novels have a certain kind of flexibility. In a novel like this, you can get away with making up cars because I make up other things also.
0: But it served the point very well because Mm -hmm. it showed, at least to me, that she wasn't trustworthy.
1: Yeah, and then she does all sorts of things right after that that make her even less trustworthy. I mean, she's a thief also. She steals a truck with a dog in it early in the novel. So that's, you know, we learn about her pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, she has strong opinions on public conveyance.
1: She likes to talk about transportation, right? Boats in particular, she loves trains she has problems with.
0: And I was thinking about it. Boats would be terrible because if... Someone who's chasing you is on the boat. It's kind of hard to get away at that point. I know.
1: I, that, that would be a good – I don't think I've ever seen a boat chase scene. I mean I've seen boat chase scenes where boats chasing each other. But no one chasing another person on a boat that I can think of. That is a that is something worth trying. I guess you could push them off and it would be pretty easy to get rid of the body that yeah. way. Or you could disguise yourself. It would be like the, the sort of like Bizarro Love Boat where like Captain Steubing gets sandbagged and then someone comes out <laughs> wearing the Captain Steubing outfit and sees if he gets away with it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, that's the first Love Boat reference in all of uh, my interviews. Right. <laughs> Someone has tried to corrupt Calvin in the past, and it's his ex-wife, Dawn. She mm-hmm. wanted him to move to Charlotte, yeah. and I could understand why he didn't want to move to Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to throw Charlotte under the bus now.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I chose Charlotte. I grew up in upstate New York, and every, all of my high school classmates who worked in construction moved to Charlotte because there were things being built there. So it always, in my mind, seemed like a place that was that kind of place and they would always when i would see them like oh man you gotta move to charlotte i was like i don't think i do uh <laughs> but that seemed like a proper place for her to want to go to somewhere new like new in terms of like the buildings are new compared to the old crappy ones she had come from so that seemed the right about place i don't want to slander charlotte too much i wish i knew more about it so i could actually slander it accurately but
0: i've only been there once mm-hmm. it seemed okay but it didn't seem to have a lot of personality
1: either yeah yeah that's i guess my impression too
0: What is it that you enjoy about stretching the credulity of minor points like the the blogging for the pellet industry and, and things like
1: that? Well, it's the kind of thing that exists. Blogging exists. But as far as I know, the pellet industry blogging doesn't exist. So I thought, well, let's see. Let's create this world where people actually do this thing. And it's related to the world we know, the world of bloggers. But they're blogging about something so cockeyed, so seemingly inconsequential that the reader doesn't. Know how that works. And so you have to build it up. So I would, you know, they would do these two different kinds of blogs. He would do this thing where he'd be really enthusiastic and he'd work in personal detail while also then talking about rebates on, you know, the Jutsal superconductor, which is something I made up. And then Don would just rant about the conventional wood stove. And it was fun to have those things mirror the plot progress as it went along so as the novel goes on the blog posts change a little bit to mirror where the characters are literally and physically
0: because at one point we have to decide if we're reading calvin's or don's blogs yeah
1: right there becomes there becomes a kind of blog impersonation there which seemed appropriate i mean the novel that i began writing before i gave up on it was supposed to be about how we live now and it was like i said slick and easy but these blog posts and then the faux blog posts, the impersonating blog posts seem to try to comment on that lightly where people, you never know who's actually saying these things to you through your screen. And I thought that would be a way to say something about the contemporary moment without yammering on about the contemporary moment.
0: And I think John Calvin would be very disappointed in Calvin so with the amount of lying he does in his blogs. I know, that made
1: me happy, right? And <laughs> he lies about the lying to himself. He says the lies, there's no point to them, which makes them harmless. But then he admits later, lies always come with a point. So yeah, yeah. I mean, Calvin would have hated much of Calvin's life, right? Aimless, passive, not full of opinions. He has no opinions at all because the people around him have very strong ones. I think the theologian would have disproved that. I was trying to think,
0: was there any particular reason for the last name Bledsoe? He, he bled so that we may live or something like that. Do you want another dumb answer? Sure, dumb answer me. The man.
1: quarterback Drew Bledsoe for the New, York- <laughs> New England Patriots is in my head. Uh, that, that's really it.
0: So she's asked Calvin to go to
1: Stockholm, Sweden with Mm -hmm.
0: her and he says no i I
1: don't even have a passport yeah and then she produces it and then the ticket and then he still says no but she cons him into going into the airport with her she is really strong vibrant character she's i think in her late 70s but there are moments where she acts really feeble plays the old lady yes and so the old lady likes to be walked to her gate Uh, i think it's the line from the and he distrusts that but he goes along anyways because that's who he is he's passive and then things happen in the airport that convince him fast that it'd be better to go with her than it would be to stay at home. Basically that Don, his ex-wife, who doesn't act like his ex-wife, wants him to come to Charlotte and keeps on him to sell his house in Congress to move with her. And then he gets a phone call in the airport saying, Don, like, oh, my God, you sold the house. When are you going to come to Charlotte? And the house has been sold, or at least it says in the Internet, the house has been sold. It's under contract. Knowing. And under so contract. suddenly the offer seems pretty damn good.
0: Being a middle-aged schlub like I am Mm -hmm. and like Calvin is, you know, I was feeling pretty close to it. And then you started mentioning all these places that I've been to myself personally. I'm going, wait a second. (laughs) That's really you. (laughs) I'll take kindly this to Mr. Clark.
1: (laughs) Well, the schlub is me too. So I've been to most of the places, although not all in the novel there's the internet. So I could look up things I hadn't mm-hmm. been on the internet. So I feel all right. Plus, you know, the narrator, there's one moment where I actually have been in Copenhagen and I spent a good amount of time there. But there's one moment where he has to describe the place he's going into the building he's going into, which I've been into a couple times, my memory of it was kind of fuzzy. And I was like, I'm going to use this fuzziness to my advantage and have him say, it's difficult to describe things when you don't know where you are. Yeah. And I was like, that was my way of saying don't look for accuracy here.
0: And he starts keeping a list of all the things he's learning from his aunt.
1: Uh-huh. Right, the kind of commandments. Yeah, right. Thou, thou shall not. Thou shall always go through the back door. Thou shall sleep with thou th- sister's husband, and all of these things. And she approves because they're basically a catalog of the awful things she teaches him, and done wittily.
0: She says that she wants to show him her old haunts in Stockholm Mm -hmm. and then later Copenhagen. But weird things, of course, keep happening. Right. A copy of his mother's book shows up in his hotel room. Mm -hmm. He meets a pornographer who features small rodents and... Gerbils, named (laughs) Gerby
1: in particular. Yes. Uh, Yeah. So I think for a while she tells him that she just wants to show Calvin her old haunts. But he begins to realize pretty quickly that it's not just a tour that she's sort of gathering slash stealing things along the way. And he has to figure out for what purpose. And this is part of what the novel does. It introduces characters who he's not sure, like the small animal pornographer, he's not sure how that guy matters. But because he's in the novel, the reader suspects, I hope, that he does matter and that we'll find out. And my hope is that all the characters are interconnected in one way or the other. One of the things the reader reads for, besides the pleasure, I hope, of reading the sentences, is to find out what they have to do with each other. It's also like Happiest People, there are a lot of nicknames in this novel. And a lot of the nicknames are just introduced as nicknames without any kind of context by the eye. And so he has to figure out well, who the hell is the conductor, who's the, the sociologist, yeah. the admiral. And yeah, that's also part of the mystery of the novel.
0: One of the things I really enjoyed about the book was that he heard a name that wasn't familiar to him uh-huh. and he spelled it by its sound. Yeah. And later he corrects it. He corrects when He it. That's right. finds out how it's actually yeah, spelled. That's
1: right. He's learning. Right. <laughs> that's part of the thing. He actually is learning by the end. How do you pronounce a Portuguese first name? That's 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 no small thing for him
0: just a point on the mechanics of the book. You have larger section numbers and then you have these kind of like micro chapters mm-hmm. within the sections. What was that organizational scheme? I all think about?
1: part of it for me is that the idea, he's a blog poster. The, the chapters should be sh- short. This is my way of excusing the fact that the cha- I wanted to write or I just felt like writing or could write short chapters. But it seemed to fit the novel that it move a lot, move really quickly from point to point. There are more of them in the early draft. There are a lot more chapters or at least some of the, the, the chapters that are now now combined were separated. And my editor was like, you know, you're breaking off in the middle of a scene here to start a new section for no apparent reason. And I was like, I was not aware of that. Or, <laughs> or I was, but it seemed like it seemed cool. But my idea is that because Calvin is who he is and does this job, he would have an attention problem, and he would skip around a lot. And that's why I wanted to write short sections. I guess they don't need to be numbered. But for me, it seemed like a way to help organize the novel to help keep track of things by numbering them. It also seemed vaguely like testamental. Right, you Mm can think, yeah, Yeah. uh, and that seemed that seemed right for a book about John Calvin, like verses in each book. Exactly, yeah. So,
0: were you a blog reader before this, or did you have to start investigating them to understand? I feel
1: like I knew enough just by being a casual reader of blogs to know how they worked, but no, I didn't know special investigation for this at all. Maybe I should have. I don't know. But I feel like, again, like as far as I know, there aren't blogs about the pelt stove. There probably are. But I felt because it was this thing I didn't know if they existed, I could make it up as I went along while also having some knowledge of how blog posts work in the back of my head. Also having an ignorant Main character absolves you from having to do much research. I keep keep doing this. I keep having ignorant characters, and so I don't have to then do certain kinds of hard work for me, which would be grinding for me. Like in this book, in in Happiest People in the World, I was often in my study yelling faster because I would get blogged. blogged. I would get bogged down in these details that didn't matter. They're often details having to do with backstory or how a character was feeling, and it wasn't helping the book. And so I think speed is, is essential in this book because otherwise we would hear get big, big paragraphs about John Calvin. And I think the aphoristic John Calvin is much more interesting than the full-on John Calvin.
0: So how much Calvin did you have to read before this?
1: I read some. I mean, I, you know, it seems like a lot. Uh, I have no idea how much it actually was. But when I was reading, I was also cataloging quotes from him that I thought would be interesting for the book used ironically at first, but then sometimes used sincerely. And they often became plot points. After I'd read enough Calvin, I had a list of these things. As I was writing, I was like, oh, this is a moment where this particular quote, actually would serve a purpose. Like early on when Calvin's trying to figure out how to eulogize his mother and he comes up with this quote from Calvin that involves bowels. It's a bowel metaphor. And I was like, this would be a great inappropriate quote to use in a eulogy. And so I used it there. And that was true for the entire novel. And when I exhausted them, I knew the novel was over.
0: You had mentioned in the acknowledgements and, and before in this interview that Graham Greene's Travels with My Aunt mm-hmm. was a big inspiration for the book. What were some of the perceived weaknesses
1: in that book that you wanted to avoid? Yeah, It's interesting none. I mean, I know the book has weaknesses because it's a book, you know, and all books have weaknesses. In the past, this is true in Arsonist Guide in particular, there were books I loathed. I'm trying to think which ones. Ethan Frome in particular by Edith Warden, a novelist I loved except for this book because I was punished by it when I was made to read it in eighth grade that I wanted to take on. I wanted to take on her version of New England. And this is true of the memoirs in that book also that I satirize. This one, I have nothing but fondness for that book. And so it wasn't even a matter of correcting something or addressing a weakness. It wasn't an homage either i thought oh what an interesting kind of updating i can do for this book not just updating it for the 21st century but also for america substitute america for britain yeah but i love that book i really do i love it in part because it's it's about big things but it's very easygoing in its depiction of big things and the narrator is calm but he becomes less so over the course of the novel. And I, I, I like that a bunch. It's hard to do.
0: He's also a literary writer who writes about intrigue. And yeah. and you do that, but with more tongue in cheek, it seems.
1: Right. No, he, uh, he talked about those books as being entertainment, right? But I think after a while, I think this is the book where he stopped making that distinction between literary novels and novels that were entertainment. And this became, this is both of those things. And those are the novels by him I like the most. The ones that you can't properly distinguish between, but whether they're literary, whether they're entertainment, they're both.
0: How do you think that readers in general react to such a blurring of
1: the lines there between literary and entertainment? Yeah, I think it's interesting. My students—it doesn't even occur to them because they read pretty widely. They read horror and they read literary fiction. Sometimes they read literary fiction because I'm making them. We often read like literary horror also. So when I I guess when you do that, then students like, all right, so you know you don't have to make the distinctions anymore. I've stopped making them too. I mean, there are some things that I'm like, this is stupid. I'm not reading this. I'll give it a shot. Like for instance, in the plane today, there's a guy reading Chipper Jones's memoir. I'm not reading that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I think well, that's, that's just because you don't like the Braves. <laughs> that might be true. That's, that's fair enough. Otherwise I don't worry about the distinction so much anymore. I believe in literary values. I believe in complication. I believe in irony. I believe in difficulty, but I also believe I want readers to be entertained. So you have to find a way to do all those things.
0: So do you think there are elements of horror in this book as well? No.
1: No, that's not a genre I'm really <laughs> I, I really into, but there's... It, it's th- the house of horrors, though. It's the house of horrors, it's true. She says that, not horrors in that way. The genre I've become really interested in the last 12 years since Arsonist Guide is mystery, the suspense. I don't read a lot of them, but I read enough of them to understand what they have going on, what they have to offer, and part of it is speed and playfulness of the things I like a bunch. Every summer, whenever I'm in a rental house, a beach house, I'll go to the shelves. I won't bring books with me and see what they got. And they always have Agatha Christie and or Ross Macdonald or writers like that. And that I'm so happy to read those books because they teach me a lot about how to craft a novel.
0: Have you ever read Lisa Lutz before? No a uh, contemporary crime fiction author She had a, a series called the Spellman files Uh-huh
1: I know that I know that name
0: right and she wrote a book with a friend of hers. I can't remember if his name is Hayward or Haywood David Hayward he was a poet mm-hmm. and it was called hedge You lose and it was a collaboration novel and what they did they went chapter by chapter, but they have notes to each other in between the chapters uh-huh. and he wants to subvert the genre and she says no there are certain conventions you have to keep <laughs> track with and it's just this bickering in between the chapters and you can see them killing off each other's characters oh, to spite each funny. other and, what's it called again uh, heads you lose yeah i'll look that up that sounds great and it's just because he was so in the, the poetry field he just wanted to wreck things yeah, that's great <laughs> that's great
1: I can't imagine doing that, writing a novel with someone else. That's like the virtue. For me, the vir- I'm in awe of that. That's a virtue of the virtue of the novels that you don't have to depend on other people. Well, they only did it once. So. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I actually have friends, uh, Juliana Baggett and Steve Almond, who co-wrote a novel together, obviously. And then, no, then <laughs> it clearly was not going to happen again.
0: So is there another story idea that's traveling around in your head right now?
1: I have three. They're sort of competing, and I haven't had enough time to really... I've been working on short stories since this book has been in the production stage, just because I can do those. But I have a couple, three novel ideas, and I'm just not sure which one's going to win out. I mean, again, part of it is every novel should react to the one that comes before and also be a departure from it. And... I'm trying to figure out whether one of these is too similar, and if so, I don't want to do it. So, But you do not I don't know that until I get pretty deep into the novel, which is just super frustrating because I've spent two years writing something <laughs> that's not what I want. But, you know, it happens every time. Yeah, don't make us wait another five years, please. Yeah, well, there's a collection of stories out here between the two novels, but... Oh, well, you also have to come here, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. But yeah, I'm working. I'm trying.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much, Brock, for coming back by. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Brock Clark is the author of the novel, Who Are You, Calvin Bloodso, which is published by Algonquin. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee. 38111 or call us at 901 This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 license for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.